I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, January the 21st on CBC Radio. In the wake of losing two former leaders and scoring key wins in Parliament, the NDP faces challenges and chances in the run-up to the next election. First up, we'll unpack what defines the NDP today and whether it can seize this moment. After that, Benjamin Netanyahu has long branded himself Mr. Security. But as we'll hear, Israeli security officials have questioned the Prime Minister's acumen since before the October 7th attacks. In hour two, 2024 is set to be history's biggest election year, with votes taking place across the world. And global politics expert Yasha Monk says there's a whole lot at stake as a whole lot of people head to the polls. And later, our Sunday documentary tells the story of an artist whose anti-war protest made her a symbol of crackdown on dissent in Russia. It all starts right now on The Sunday Magazine. Twenty twenty four began on a sad note for the NDP with the death of their beloved and longtime former federal leader Ed Broadbent. A few days after his death, Rachel Notley, who led the NDP to a stunning victory in the twenty fifteen Alberta provincial election and helped define the party, announced she is stepping down as party leader in that province. Those losses will be part of the backdrop as the party meets in Edmonton this week for its national caucus. The federal party has big decisions to make and issues to tackle, including what it means to be the NDP as it prepares for the next election. John Ibbotson is a longtime national politics columnist and writer-at-large for The Globe and Mail. Raisa Patel is a federal politics reporter for The Toronto Star. And Brad Levine is a partner at the Council of Public Affairs and a former national director of the NDP. Good Sunday morning to you all. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Raisa, you're in Edmonton um, covering the NDP caucus meeting, which begins tomorrow. What role will this caucus meeting play in directing the NDP as it looks toward the next federal election? So the caucus retreat is really a time for the party's MPs to set their agenda and priorities for the next session of Parliament, which starts at the end of January. And and that's also when the public inquiry into foreign interference begins, which the NDP pushed for. And and they also have a vested interest in it because one of their MPs has been targeted. So there are various things likely to come up in those closed door discussions around that, but also, you know, around cost of living concerns and particularly around 
the NDP's extended deliberations with the Liberals over ushering in pharmacare legislation. I think, though, that, that the more interesting angle for this week's retreat is that it's being held, as you said, in Edmonton. You know, this is a city the federal NDP is very enthusiastic about capturing in the next federal election. They want to expand on the two seats that they hold here and, and take seats away from the conservatives and liberals. So we can also expect uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh to be spending the week, you know, door knocking with one of their top candidates in the area, holding a town hall to discuss issues that are relevant to Albertans and also addressing housing concerns since Edmonton is experiencing a crisis in that area right now. So Brad Levine, as Raisa points out there, those are some of the issues, the policies, the sort of, um, you know, door knocking that's going to go on in this this week. You have good sources inside this party. How satisfied is the membership with the state of the party as it meets in Edmonton? Well, I would say that uh, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for the, the kind of... Um, results that Jagmeet Singh and the, and the caucus are getting out of Parliament. You saw in December there, that was the latest announcement uh, about the dental care. Uh, and you also saw the, uh, I think the New Democratic Caucus led by Don Davies, the health critic, uh, standing firm on the positions around pharmacare. Uh, so I think that heading into the next election, so we're about a year, maybe 18 months away from the next election, uh, the debt is paid off from the last election, uh, which is good news. Uh, and I think that this this caucus retreat for the party um, really is an opportunity to kind of focus on what can we get done in the life of this parliament and how do we position ourselves to get ready for the next campaign so that we're in a position of strength, uh, not a, in a position of weakness when it comes to the next uh, the next round of uh, negotiations with the liberals on what they can get done in this in this parliament. John Ibbotson, let me ask you this. What should the NDP be focusing on as it tries to build its case uh, with the voters of Canada? Well, as Brad said, uh, they have been able to implement uh, several of their major priorities by the ho- holding the Liberals' feet to the fire through a supply and confidence agreement. So they've got their dental care. Um, they're going to get pharmacare in the spring budget, or they had better get some version of pharmacare in the spring budget. After that, they have to ask themselves a question. The NDP um, is several points behind the Liberals in the popular vote, but it's still getting to be reasonably close. Justin Trudeau is a deeply unpopular prime minister uh, right now, um, and there's good reason to wonder whether the NDP should keep the supply and confidence agreement going all the way through to the, to the next fall campaign, or whether um, people might prefer to go to the polls earlier. And if they do go to the polls earlier, could the NDP actually pick up some of the progressive vote and start to move into an, a situation not unlike what you had in 2011 uh, when Jack Layton's NDP was able to push past uh, the Liberals to form the official opposition. The NDP are the official opposition in Ontario now. Um, the, the polling numbers are decent. So there are some political calculations for the NDP to, to consider as well when they have this meeting, which is how long do we keep this very tired Liberal government going? Okay, let's talk more about this um, supply and confidence deal. In case anyone out there needs a reminder, this was a, a deal between the Liberals and the NDP in, um, I think it was March of 2022. It's set to expire in uh, June of 2025. Um, and the NDP has been in this agreement with the Liberals. Rice, as you talk to caucus members as you're gathering in Edmonton and as you cover the NDP, how would you say uh, members inside the party are feeling about this arrangement with the Liberals at this point? 
You know, I think they're fairly happy with what they've achieved so far. If we look at the big picture, you know, the deal is is going well. It's approaching the two-year mark, as you said. One of its central pillars, dental care, is well underway. Last year, the Liberals also introduced two bills that were really key to the NDP, the Sustainable Jobs Act and a bill that would ban the use of replacement workers. But, you know, at the same time, the pact is starting to show some signs of where they've struggled, the Liberals and the NDP, to reach consensus on one extremely important issue for the NDP. And that's a framework for national pharmacare program. And that's something that both sides are really seized with right now. The NDP want a public single payer program, but the Liberals are bound by spending constraints that could make that an unlikely prospect. And and those disagreements have led both parties to toss out what's stipulated in the deal and extend the deadline for releasing that framework. And, and it's sort of this issue that I think people might be seized with this week. It's something we need to watch closely in the next month. The NDP's membership at their convention last fall clearly told the party, you know, we want to see you leverage your power in this deal better. We want to see you back out of the agreement if you don't get exactly what you're looking for. So so Singh is certainly in a tough position at the moment. You know, if the liberals exhibit restraint, is he going to listen to his members and walk or, or is he going to ignore their will and, and, and stick with Justin Trudeau? Brad Levine, how are you seeing the, this deal right at this point two years in? Uh, I think by and large, uh, it's been good for uh, the country. That's first and foremost. I think there's a, a lot more Canadians today that have um, access to things like dental care. Uh, and there's other other provisions that have that have gotten through as well. So by and large, it has been good for the country. Now, a lot of political observers will, you know, will try to game it out and say, will this be a benefit for the New Democrats in the next election campaign? The short answer is it's too early to tell. But what I would like to remind them is it's, I think it's better to go into the next election campaign with a record uh, than going into uh, an election campaign without one. That is, you know, after the last election in 2021, you know, New Democrats received about 25 uh, seats in a minority parliament. What did they do with that leverage? Well, they got dental care. They got movement on pharmacare. And let's hope uh, that continues. Um, and they got the uh, anti-scab legislation, which has been a longstanding um, you know, desire of the trade union movement in this country and, and of the party. So, you know, s- some really good successes, uh, you know, uh, within within a minority parliament context. Now, it, it, to John's point, they're going to have to pivot soon uh, as to whether or not they uh, will continue to get momentum on some of these issues. The, the big issue with pharmacare, uh, you know, I would suggest to them that they they must get something from the Liberals not just a commitment to do something in 2027 or after the next election campaign. They have to make sure that some component of the population gets relief on high prescription drug costs before the next election campaign. Uh, it doesn't look exactly like the first uh, draft of the uh, confidence and supply agreement. I don't think that's necessarily uh, necessary, but they need they need some relief for some strata of uh, mm. the population in order to in order to claim victory on the pharmacare file. John Ibbotson, here's the challenge, perhaps, that as you get into an election campaign, the NDP can can say and put forth to Canadians, look, we got you dental care, your pharmacare should happen then we got you that too. We got you um, other things. At the same time, the Liberals can say the same things. We passed this as your government. We got you this thing. How much of that, like that sort of narrative is going to be a challenge for the NDP? It's a challenge and an opportunity. Look, history says that when third parties support um, larger parties to form either a coalition or a confidence and supply agreement 
or the accord that was signed between the NDP and the Liberals in Ontario um, in 1985. Whenever you have these agreements with a small party, props up uh, the larger party, it's bad for the small party mm. in the next election. The small party gets hammered, as the NDP did in 1987, um, as the Liberal Democrats did in Great Britain. But history is not inevitable. Um, the As we say, the, the Liberal government is very tired. Justin Trudeau is very unpopular. Um, if the, um, the NDP were to, let's say, bring the government down in the spring, because there isn't uh, progress on pharmacare, because there isn't uh, satisfaction on the part of the NDP with what the Liberals are prepared to come up with, and then go to the people and say, well, we got you this, uh, and we can get you more, but you need to um, you know, give us your vote so that we can either hold the Liberals' feet to the fire or so that we can form the official opposition if the Conservatives become uh, the government, which is, is actually at this point more than likely. Both of those things are good for the NDP. If you're just joining us here on this Sunday morning, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with the Globe and Mail's John Abbotson, Toronto Star federal politics reporter Raisa Patel, and Brad Levine, former direct national director of the NDP. I want to ask all of you this, and Raisa, let me begin with you. Um, the Conservatives seem to have gained some of what people would describe as traditional NDP support, sort of working class things. That, that's sort of one of the, the things that's being said. Um, how challenging is that for the NDP? Is it bleeding um, support from its traditional basis? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, both the Conservatives and the NDP think the next election is going to be a change election. And so the challenge for the New Democrats is to figure out how to go up against, you know, the titan that Pierre Polyev is. And so you know, as you say, they've been courting some of the same groups. One of the tactics that that the NDP has been putting out there is that they're looking at Pierre Polyev's previous voting record in terms of what he's done for workers, for the working class, his stance on unions, things like that, and, and using some of his previous history against him. Uh, you know, over the course of the summer, I, I was tracking each of the leaders and where they were going and, and why they were going places and it was clear that, you know, Jagmeet Singh was trying to get himself out on picket lines as much as he could while Pierre Paulia was, you know, very absent from that kind of a space. Um, so where the, the NDP have really been focusing is that they've been, you know, fundraising for months to, to funnel resources into local campaigns specifically to root out the Tories. You know, they're picking pockets of the country like like Edmonton to turn them orange and what they've been doing is is trying to position themselves as the only party who, who cares about the kinds of policies and issues and people that matter in an affordability crisis and, and sort of trying to say that Pierre Polyev is, yeah. is not the right man to tackle those issues. So mm. right now it's kind of just a question of whether Canadians are actually paying attention to what they have to say and, and believing it. Brad Levine, are you concerned, worried, maybe a better word, about the NDP losing some of its traditional support to other parties, particularly the Conservatives? Well, yeah, there's either you're either playing defense or you're playing offense. So, you know, every political party always is worried about leading uh, their voter coalition uh, to a to a rival uh, competitor party. So, uh, you know, this is nothing new. Uh, I think that that actually there is tremendous opportunity for Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats to actually go a lot harder in terms of its focus and its critique of Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives. Um, not that the Liberals are not giving us uh, plenty to work with, but I think that that there's a real opportunity for Singh to be the real anti-Polyev uh, candidate, the real Polyev fighter, 
because of his poll uh, numbers and because of the financial strength of the Conservative Party right now. Um, I also don't want to lose sight of another key component to the voter coalition for the NDP, and that's Quebec. If you take a look at where the party has been most successful, it cannot be a viable option for government without a strong support in the province of Quebec. Currently, uh, that's an area that is not a, strength, a strong point for, for Singh and the NDP, but it's certainly, there's plenty of time uh, to, to bolster that. And then when the party rises in a province like Quebec, voters in British Columbia, Southwest Ontario, and the prairies start looking at the party fresh, with fresh eyes, uh, as a viable alternative uh, to the other parties. So that's, that's a key component. Uh, can't forget about Quebec. Um, Johnny, but some pick up on that because there are some critics of Jugmeet Singh saying he can't gain traction in Quebec. How much of a challenge do you think Jugmeet Singh is to the party as a whole now? I think he took the party um, back to where it had been uh, for much of its history prior to Jack Layton's big breakthrough in 2011. Um, and he deserves uh, some criticism for not being able to build on the gains that Jack Layton achieved and that Thomas Mulcair at least partially hung on to, but he also deserves credit for holding the traditional uh, NDP base together. Remember the 1990s, the party was on the verge of extinction, that that base is not inevitable, it is fragile and has to be protected. So Mr. Singh has done that, he has protected the NDP base. Um, He has not obviously grown the party in Quebec, I'm not in the least bit confident uh, that he will, but the real opportunity for the NDP, for any party that wants to gain seats, is in the suburban ridings around Toronto and Vancouver, uh, the 905 and the Lower Mainland. Um, and there he should be able to make some gains. He was uh, a Brampton politician himself. Um, he's out there uh, in Surrey. So it should be uh, possible for the NDP to split off some of the Liberal progressive vote in the 905 um, and to pick up seats there. If indeed we are in an election campaign, and if indeed the Liberals are as unpopular as they are now, it is a compelling argument to say that the person who's best able to take on Pierre Polyev and keep the the government accountable and protect the the rights of workers and the rights of of, uh, lower-income families and the rights of everyone who's struggling is an NDP government, not a Liberal government. I think that could be a compelling case. And Mr. Singh is now um, an experienced campaigner. And uh, he has a chance to make some real gains. On the other hand, elections are volatile. Um, If he does not make real gains, this will be his last election as NDP leader. Ray, so we began our conversation with you sort of setting out the agenda or the things that the NDP plans to talk about this week. But I do want to bring up uh, an issue, an issue that, uh, well, an issue that has proved challenging, frankly, for almost every party. Um, This is the Israel-Hamas war. On Friday, Jagmeet Singh issued an open letter calling for a ceasefire and calling for Palestinian statehood once the war is concluded. Um, How worried should the NDP leadership be that this issue could create, cause, further exacerbate a divide within its party? So the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have have long been a thorny issue for the NDP. You know, there are factions of the party who want the NDP to take a a much, much stronger stance against Israel and and use much stronger language in how it acknowledges this crisis, which the party has, you know, avoided doing for the most part. Um, But you know, the party's base and membership are are supporters of a ceasefire. In their national convention last fall, which was held only a week after the October 7th attack, 
Members passed an emergency resolution calling for a ceasefire, amongst other measures. This was still early days into the war at a time when, you know, there weren't as many political voices as there are now calling for that measure or similar measures. So I guess it's unlikely that their current supporters will turn on them over this. You know, they haven't, the federal party hasn't seen the same issues as the Ontario NDP did when MPP Sarah Jama went public with her position on the conflict. Is it possible that their position, you know, pushes away the most important voters, the ones who don't currently vote NDP? I, I suppose that's possible. But but at the same time, you know, as you say, this is an issue that all political parties are grappling with because they're all having to walk careful lines in, in how they tackle it. Mm. Probably. Let, let's talk about it. And I think that issue sort of plays into this, who the NDP is in 2024, because there are people who say, look, just define yourself, be, be, be on the left, be further left. In fact, be, be more traditional. Tell us that you are the party on the left that opposes the other parties. How would you define, like, who is the NDP in 2024? Yeah, I, I think that there are lots of people out there who, you know, provide advice, you know, to all political parties, including the NDP, on 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 its marketing, on its promotions, on its on it, on what it, how how it should promote itself. You know, the the notion of left versus right, uh, you know, is is language that I think we use, you know, in political science. We use it, I think, in the media. I think, but I think the average everyday Canadian, uh, you know, don't use that language to the same extent. I think that some uh, you know, pundits and observers, uh, you know, think that they do. I believe that the issue is relevance versus not relevant. That is, does the party speak to the issues of my everyday? Do they speak to my concerns? It's a social democratic party, so it has a, it should have a class consciousness. It should have a, ba- a class-based uh, outlook on how uh, it, it it approaches uh, the issues that the that the country needs to, to grapple with. Uh, but I, I, I think that the that the party does its best when it speaks to the issues, uh, you know, that are mm-hmm. relevant to everyday uh, individuals. And, and I think that that's a lot more powerful than, you know, are you left? Are you on the right? Are you the center? Are you slightly to the left? These I think these nuances in language don't necessarily speak to a lot of Canadians anymore. Fair point. Uh, John Ibbotson, I got about 30 seconds left, but how would you define the NDP? How, how do you think it should define itself in 2024? Well, we're working through the evolution of a society that was more class-based in the past and is more identity-based now. So the NDP used to be the party of the farmer, used to be the party of the mill worker, used to be the party of the guy on the line. And the Conservatives are increasingly poaching uh, a lot of those voters. They have already poached uh, some of them, and they're going after more of them with a kind of populist conservative rhetoric. Mm. The NDP has to find what its identity is. I think it has an opportunity uh, to be the party of immigrants, to be the party um, of new Canadians, to be the party of those who are struggling. Um, but it, like the rest of us, has to figure out how we evolve through these these social upheavals in which we are not simply defined by our class anymore, but by how we identify as, ourselves as individuals within society. Okay, we will leave it there. John Raisa. Uh, Brad, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. John Ibbotson is a writer at large for The Globe and Mail. Raisa Patel is a federal politics reporter for the Toronto Star. And Brad Levine is a partner at the Council of Public Affairs and a former national director of the NDP.
Benjamin Netanyahu recently told the United States that he opposes the establishment of a Palestinian state. It is a position long held by Israel's longest serving prime minister. And the rejection of the two-state solution is among the things that has put Prime Minister Netanyahu at odds for years with many leaders in Israel's security and intelligence establishment. Netanyahu has long sold himself to the Israeli public as quote-unquote Mr. Security, but that carefully cultivated self-image was shattered on October the 7th as many Israelis blame their leader for the intelligence failures that led to the attacks by Hamas. Guy Ziv is the associate director of the American University Center for Israel Studies, and he has a new book out about the tensions between Israel's prime minister and top security officials. His book is called Netanyahu versus the Generals, the Battle for Israel's Future. I spoke with Guy Ziv on Thursday. This book of yours, you began writing long before the attacks on October the 7th. So, you had investigated research, wrote about the tense relationship between Prime Minister Netanyahu and the security establishment in Israel. So when October 7th, when you woke up that morning, what went through your mind? Well, my uh, immediate thought was shock and horror at uh, the events that were unfolding, uh, many of which were still unclear to me. And uh, it took a while to process. This was precisely 50 years to the date of the Yom Kippur War. And this is something that's kind of ingrained the Yom Kippur War, the fact that Israel was caught off guard in October of 73 on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar is ingrained in the Israeli psyche. And for another attack uh, to occur on Israeli soil 50 years later on yet another Jewish holiday is just something that nobody uh, could imagine, especially not from a non-state actor like Hamas, which uh, nobody expected. And so as you processed, as you say, Guy, understandably, the shock, the sadness, the horror that so many Israelis and people around the world were processing that day, but as that sort of settled in for you, were you then surprised? Because I think so many lay people were so surprised and shocked. But here you were, you had been investigating this stuff. How surprised were you? I think everyone was surprised. This was not something that was uh, anticipated, uh, although now, of course, and we're going to know a lot more once uh, there are actual commissions of inquiry that investigate exactly what went wrong. So now we do know that there, there were signs and there were definitely um, voices out there within the security establishment warning that something like this would happen. And it seemed that Hamas was more interested in perhaps managing, uh, running the day-to-day affairs of the Gaza Strip um, than uh, creating terror. Uh, That assumption was clearly wrong. What I think is less surprising here is that this idea that Netanyahu could manage the conflict indefinitely, that he could just manage the situation with the Palestinians and not having to worry about resolving the conflict, not having to worry about ending the occupation, not having to worry about uprooting settlements. The fact that that was his premise and he was very confident about that, that aspect is less surprising to those of us uh, who've said you, you, this is not sustainable. Hmm. So again, we hear people, you know, pointing the finger squarely at the prime minister of Israel for this failure. Do you think that's that's a fair assessment at this point? Well, I think that there's probably more of a lot of blame to go around, unfortunately. And several senior members of the security establishment, including the head of Shin Bet and 
the head of uh, the IDF intelligence and other kind of senior officials have already taken responsibility and said, uh, I, I share some blame for what happened. I take responsibility. The one person who has yet to say so is Netanyahu. And clearly, uh, if you believe that the book stops here, to quote Harry Truman, the Netanyahu uh, surely deserves uh, quite a bit of the blame. I mean, he is, after all, the prime minister uh, who's pr- who presided over the bloodiest terrorist incident in the country's history. Hmm. Tell me about, as you were writing this book and, and researching and stuff, how you came to understand the relationship between the various security agencies in Israel and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who'd been, who's been in power for you know more than a decade and a half. What, how would you paint that relationship? Well, what prompted me to write this book was just, I thought it was a fascinating paradox that on the one hand, you have a very successful politician who is Israel's longest serving prime minister due in large part to his political skills and abilities that are unparalleled in Israel, who builds himself as Mr. Security. And on the other hand, you have the security establishment who has long viewed Netanyahu as a security liability. And so to me, that was just a a paradox that was uh, really fascinating and interesting to uh, to investigate further. Hmm. Let's talk about that paradox. As you say, Prime Minister Netanyahu to the public has always tried and arguably been quite successful as portraying himself as Mr. Security, in that in quotes. How was he able to sell that vision of himself to Israelis when so many generals, and we'll talk about what they thought of him, spy chiefs and others were saying he actually was a threat to national security? Like, How, how did he sell that arguably false bill of goods? Well, for one thing, Netanyahu's family is very well known in Israel because his older brother, Yoni Netanyahu, was the one person killed at the Entebbe uh, rescue raid. Uh, this is back in 1976, a famed rescue raid where uh, hostages were taken to Uganda and Netanyahu's older brother was the commander and the only person killed in that uh, famed operation. So he became kind of a hero in in a sense. And the younger Netanyahu, uh, Benjamin or Bibi Netanyahu, really took on the cause of fighting terrorism. He wrote books on fighting terrorism. He organized conferences. And when he entered politics, uh, security became his key theme. And it was featured in all of his election campaigns. And with his media skills, and he's a very savvy communicator, he was able to kind of drive home the the message that he is Mr. Security. Without saying that um, he's Mr. Security, he implied that his opponents, whoever his rivals were, were weak on security, that Netanyahu and only Netanyahu could be counted on to ensure Israeli security. And so as Netanyahu is selling himself as Mr. Security, and as you say, um, since he came to power, that's sort of been one of the ways he says, like, I'm the only person who can keep our country safe. How were the generals, the spy chiefs, like behind the scenes, how were they talking about Netanyahu when it comes to security? So he becomes prime minister in 96. And in 1996, he runs against Shimon Peres who had taken over for Rabin after Rabin was assassinated in November of 95. And in his campaign against Shimon Peres, his campaign slogan was making a secure peace. 
And another slogan of his was that Paris would divide Jerusalem. So he was kind of using divisive scare tactics even back then. And he appointed a general, Yitzhak Mordechai, as his defense minister to kind of shore up his credibility on the security front. But they had a falling out, and this is part of a long-standing pattern we would see throughout the Netanyahu years to this very day, where Netanyahu has rarely gotten along with any of his defense ministers. Uh, Yitzhak Mordechai, who was about to quit, was fired and decided to challenge him and established a short-lived center party with the outgoing IDF chief of staff at the time. And it was another ex-IDF chief of staff, Ehud Barak, who was then heading the Labor Party after Shimon Peres' defeat um, and resignation, that uh, ultimately won the election. Uh, and this was a humiliating defeat for Netanyahu. I'm talking about his re-election bid of 1999. And uh, he came to the conclusion that his his number one, his top political rivals are the generals. And the generals were saying what about him? They were saying that he was not committed to the peace process and missing out on, on, on key opportunities, that he was a bungler. There were a number of incidents during that first term, uh, including uh, an ill-fated attempt to assassinate Khaled Mashal, the head of Hamas. Uh, this was in Jordan. Khaled Mashal was poisoned. And when King Hussein got word of it and was outraged, this threatened to unravel the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan. I mean, it was a major crisis. Netanyahu was then forced to send another agent to Jordan to administer the, uh, the antidote, thereby saving the Hamas leader that he attempted to uh, assassinate. This was just one of, of a number of incidents. There was the opening of a tunnel in a very controversial part of Jerusalem that uh, created riots. And Netanyahu routinely dismissed all the warnings he received from the heads of the security establishment. Well, he was dismissive towards them. He didn't consult with them. He ignored their recommendations and warnings. And so uh, he starts out on a, on a very bad footing uh, from day one, practically. And then how, through the next like nearly two decades, does the military establishment who says you're a bungler, you're not the Mr. Security that you're selling to the public, how do the various opponents that he comes across, you know, the Baraks, the, the Lapids, the Libnis, there were so many, how are they not able to show the Israeli public that this guy isn't what he says he is, like he isn't Mr. Security? So that's also an interesting irony here, that you have... Netanyahu continues to present himself as Mr. Security. And uh, just to give you another example, in 2015, he's running for a re-election again, and his campaign features an ad telling voters that a victory for the left will bring about an invasion by ISIS. He's able to do this in part because the second intifada, which followed uh, the Camp David summit of 2000, of July 2000, destroyed the Israeli left. And so the vast majority of Israelis grew tired of this idea that the two-state solution or the peace process is going to somehow lead to a peaceful outcome. There was this kind of notion that is still you still hear in Israel to this very day that there is no partner on the other side. And so with the Israeli population, you know, largely indifferent or opposed to 
this idea of renewing peace talks with the Palestinians, Netanyahu has an easier time than any of his kind of left-wing counterparts. And in recent years, he hasn't even had any real left-wing challenges. I mean, the challenges have come from the center, not from the truncated Israeli left. But in recent years, and since the 2010s, uh, Israel has also experienced a strong wave of populist nationalism. And we see this all over the globe. It's not just in Israel, but this really worked well in Netanyahu's favor, that he was able to kind of cultivate this camp that has stuck with him and uh, they have not abandoned him. Um, and so they mm-hmm. stuck with him. I'm referring here not just to his Likud party, I'm referring to parties to the right as well as the religious parties who have been very loyal to Netanyahu. And we see a lot of figures who are speaking in very populist, you know, using kind of political uh, tools that populist nationalists in other countries use that Netanyahu has utilized as well. If you're just joining us here on this Sunday morning, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with Guy Ziv, the author of a new book called Netanyahu versus the Generals. Okay, so Guy, that sort of all leads us up to October 7th. You wrote that on that day, that massacre in Israel, that it all shattered Prime Minister Netanyahu's long cultivated image as Mr. Security. Why do you think he has avoided taking responsibility some might say any responsibility for events that took place on his watch under his leadership on October 7th. Netanyahu is driven today by one major factor, and that is survival, political survival. And he understands that the moment he does take responsibility, he's out of the game. But it's not looking great for him. And he understands that most Israelis today, according to every poll out there, want to see him out of office. And that includes a lot of his own supporters, a lot of his own voters, people who voted for him in the last election. And yet he refuses to step down because he understands that that would be the end for his uh, career. So it's political survival above everything else. I guess the thing about October 7th is that it was so such a failure of Israel's security establishment. And you write in your book that Prime Minister Netanyahu is inclined to, quote, place his personal and political interests above national ones. And when I read that you said that, you know, you can understand it kind of under, quote unquote, normal times. But what happened on October 7th was just so different. Is he really, in your understanding of him, a man that at any cost to his country, to his people would put his own personal interests above all of that? Well, you know, this is actually uh, not my original observation. This is something that I interviewed uh, 46 people for this book and and had plenty of other off-the-record meetings. But the one thing that I heard time and again, the one line I heard time and again from the various former generals and security officials that I interviewed was that that's their big beef with Netanyahu, that they do not think he's putting the country's interests ahead of his political and personal interests. And that becomes more accentuated as time goes on, especially in recent years. So we're more than three months since um, October 7th, 7th and since the war in Gaza began. You've said that Netanyahu can be, quote, risk averse by nature, yet he has shown a willingness to embark on a dangerous adventure if he feels it will strengthen him politically. So how does 
Israel's current military operations, its war in Gaza, fit into this calculation? It is in Netanyahu's interest to drag this war on indefinitely. Now, what's not entirely clear is what the strategy here is going to be. Uh, and I'm talking about the post-war strategy, for one thing, because Netanyahu has avoided any kind of substantive discussion about this, the, the uh, post-war plans. So for now, it's all about fighting and destroying Hamas, which is a very elusive uh, goal. It's a goal that that I think every or most Israelis certainly share, the vast majority of, of, of the nation shares. But the question is, is that achievable militarily? And uh, from Netanyahu's perspective, yes, but he clearly has his own political and personal interest in pursuing this war indefinitely. As we talked about at the beginning, um, there will be a number of probes into what happened on October 7th. The Israeli military has announced plans to launch an internal investigation into the failures of that day. What could that internal inquiry do? What could it find? Well, it's it's uh, just as the Agronaut Commission in the wake of the Yom Kippur War outlined the kind of failures and, and led to the resignation of the then key IDF and defense ministry officials the same could happen here as well. But first of all, there was there may be a struggle in terms of the makeup of this commission. Who is going to decide on the makeup of this commission since everything is, is very polarized and politicized today? And then how many years is it going to take for this investigation to take hold? So I don't even want to speculate because this can take this process can take years, literally years, long after some of these officials are gone. And so I don't think we're going to have any kind of immediate benefit from having this. Um, and, and so the only thing I'm comfortable predicting is you're going to see this commission. You're going to see a commission of inquiry of some sort being formed. When, what the makeup is, uh, what their mandate will be, what their conclusions are going to be, at this point, it's premature to speculate. Benjamin Netanyahu has... Um, in all his years uh, in politics, seen massive, massive protests. There have been thousands of Israelis, tens of thousands, protesting against him since he's come into office, including in the last couple of years when he tried to put these justice reforms through, when he's now possibly facing time in prison. And yet this man has been able to survive, survive, survive. More lives than a than a cat, is how someone put that. How survivable is this moment for him, do you think? Well, as I mentioned earlier, he's often referred to as a political uh, magician. He's a very politically savvy person with very strong communication skills. And he has been able to survive many protests and demonstrations, as you uh, correctly point out. I don't think he will anymore. I think this is really the, the end of the line. I have not seen a single poll in the last uh, half a year, or certainly not in the last three months, that shows that uh, most Israelis would support him or his coalition or, or see him as the most fit or able person to be prime minister. Polls have been very consistent about this, and I don't see that changing in any way. This is, even among his former voters and supporters, I think this is it. And the only question is, well, are we talking uh, another few months or possibly another year or so? 
But this is really the end of his uh, political area. He does not have a political future after this. You have said in this interview, and you've written at the end of your book, that Prime Minister Netanyahu's approach toward the Palestinian issue is one of managing the conflict or had has long been that, not to resolve it. What's it going to take now? Because this is the big question that the world is asking. What happens after um, the military stops its fighting in Gaza? What would it What's it going to take to revive any hope for a sustainable peace between Israelis and and Palestinians? It's going to take leaders who are willing to take the initiative and who are willing to really have a meaningful conversation about what kind of vision they see for the future of Israelis and Palestinians who are destined to be there and neither is going away. And this is a conversation that Netanyahu refuses to have because he does not want to lose his right-wing coalition partners. He understands that the minute he goes there, the minute he starts talking about a two-state solution or a one-state solution or a confederation or any solution, uh, he loses the extreme right. Um, and without them, he doesn't have a coalition. So his premise, as I mentioned earlier over the years, was he could manage uh, the conflict. And one of the ways in which he's tried to manage the conflict has been to weaken uh, President Mahmoud Abbas. And Mahmoud Abbas today is in such dire straits. He's, uh, I think this is the 20th year of his first term in office. He is somebody who is weak, old, frail, has no credibility left. And so we're, we're really looking at a post Netanyahu and post Abbas era. But by weakening and undermining Abbas at every turn, he actually emboldened Hamas. And that was part of his his strategy. And he said as much to his own Likud party several years ago, that by keeping the Palestinians uh, divided between uh, Fatah on the one hand and Hamas on the other hand, one running the West Bank, the other one in, in Gaza, he was effectively preventing the establishment, the creation of a Palestinian state. And despite the fact that in June of 2009, he made history by declaring his support for a two-state solution uh, during the speech he gave at Bar Ilan University. Nobody really bought that. His strategy has always been really kicking the can down the road on this two-state solution. So I think we're going to have to wait until the post-Netanyahu era to actually have a serious discussion about what kind of arrangement could be made uh, between Israelis and Palestinians. And, and I think to this very day, the two-state solution remains the most logical uh, outcome. And as you say, the post-Netanyahu era could begin in months or maybe longer than that. Given that he is the longest-serving Prime Minister of Israel, that will always be uh, part of his legacy, at least to date. But what do you think the legacy of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will be? I, I, I think that after October 7th, it will be impossible to see him in any other light. I mean, he's going to be seen as the prime minister and under his watch, under this prime minister's watch, Israel experienced uh, the deadliest terrorist attack in the country's history and the worst anti-Semitic event, really, since the Holocaust uh, against the Jewish people. I mean, the trauma that Israelis endured on October 7th and beyond is really hard for so many people outside of Israel to, to fully understand and realize what this what this did. So he will forever be associated uh, with that debacle and, and that will overshadow 
anything else that he's done, including accomplishments, including positive things he's done for the economy and other aspects of um, his rule over the years. There's no way of undoing the damage uh, that he did. And um, speaking of damage, uh, I would also add that the damage he's done to the social fabric of Israeli society is a more long-term sort of damage that I think scholars and think tankers and observers of the Israeli political scene are going to be commenting on in the years to come. Israel has never been this polarized. And a lot of this is a result of the divisive political tactics and strategy of Netanyahu, who does not have uh, any red lines these days. Um, for example, the far right extremist cabinet members would, would never be people he would in the past have even considered to work with. And today anything goes because it's all about preserving his uh, political power. So that too, I'm afraid, will be part of his legacy. Your book, as I said to you before we started this interview, is a very detailed look at one of the most controversial leaders of Israel, but also one of the most controversial leaders in our world. And I appreciate so much um, talking to you and listening to you about it all. Thanks, Guy. It's been my pleasure. Guy Ziv is the Associate Director of American University Center for Israel Studies. His new book is called Netanyahu versus the Generals, The Battle for Israel's Future. Okay, don't skip ahead. I'm going to talk to you about climate change. And I know it can get depressing or infuriating, but our show takes a different approach. It's Laura Lynch, and I'm the host of What on Earth? And we're all about solutions and hope. And I promise, no matter how overwhelming climate change might feel, we're with you on the journey to fix this mess. So listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Twenty twenty four is poised to be the year of democracy, as countries containing half the world's population are set to hold elections. Taiwan and Bangladesh have already gone to the polls in twenty twenty four. Finland, Pakistan, and Indonesia are among those soon to follow. And then later this year, the world's two largest democracies, India and the United States, will cast their ballots. But Yasha Monk says the rise of populist parties and authoritarian leaders could threaten liberal democracy as we know it on a global scale. Yasha is an international affairs professor at Johns Hopkins University, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and the author of several books on democracy. His latest book is called The Identity Trap. Yasha, good morning to you. Good morning. Broadly speaking, just how at risk is liberal democracy around the world right now? Well, I would distinguish between two different kinds of threats to democracies. Um, one is that uh, there are many countries in the world in which democracy has always been relatively unstable. Countries that um, are not that affluent, countries that have a relatively short or contested democratic history, that have perhaps made some progress towards democracy in the last decades, but in which democracy is not, in the language of political scientists, yet consolidated. Mm. Um, there are some of those countries that are going to the polls, like Pakistan, for example, this year. But that is a, a less surprising part of the story. Perhaps the more surprising part of the story is that even countries that political scientists would have declared safe 10 years ago, where we would have said, well, this is a consolidated democracy, it's a rich country, it's changed government for free and fair elections many times over the course of a number of decades or centuries, uh, now look to be in danger 
of losing the democratic institutions. And the prime example here, of course, is the United States, where we've seen an authoritarian populist in the form of Donald Trump uh, come in in 2016, attack a lot of the independent institutions in the country, uh, and now looking poised to potentially come back for a second term. All right, we'll talk about the United States a little later on. But, um, you know, you just said the word populist, and I'm, I just want to spend a moment or two um, talking about the language we tend to just throw around when we talk about these elections and, and democracies, because I think you'd agree with me that, that, that they matter. And so when we say populism, we hear that term a lot. It's certainly not new, nor is it affiliated with the right. But what shape is populis- populism taking in 2024? Yeah, so it's it's worth, I think, explaining what uh, political scientists actually mean when they talk about populism, right? It sounds a little bit like, well, that's just populism, that's just politicians standing up for things that are popular or wanting to be popular. Surely that's part of a democracy, and that's that's absolutely right. It is perfectly normal for politicians to seek out positions that are popular, to, to want to maximize their share of the vote. All of that is exactly what democracy is for. Um, but what we mean when we talk about populism and political science is uh, political movements, parties, candidates that really deny the legitimacy of anybody who disagrees with them. They they claim that they alone stand for the populace, for the people, that they alone are the legitimate representatives of all Canadians, US Americans, Germans, Indians, Indonesians, wherever the context may be. Rather than recognizing that we're always going to have a plurality of opinions and plurality of voices, but we're going to be able to disagree with each other, uh, that it's part of politics to say, hey, I think it's really important that I win the election because the opponent is really wrong about important things. But you know what? If they win, that's fine too. They get to govern for four or five years, and then hopefully I'll have a chance to come back and to beat them. They say, no, these people are traitors. They're, they're dangerous. They're going to subvert this country. We must do whatever we can to stop them. And that is what makes populists, whether they are on the right or whether they're on the left or whether they're in the political center, so dangerous to our democratic institutions. Mm. Is that sort of the precipice, right? Like the, the, the slippage into something else than a liberal democracy or a democracy, as you said, it kind of the term is different depending where you are in the world. That sort of slide into from populism and, and that precipice to an authoritarianism. Yes, absolutely. So one good way of thinking about our political system is to recall that it has two main ambitions. And there's different ways of expressing that. So often we say liberal democracy, but what liberal means so many different things in different places that it can be a little bit contested. Uh, Other people prefer a term like a democratic republic. Um, But uh, what is at the core of that is two aspirations. The first, that we should be able to rule ourselves collectively, right? Part of a democracy is that it's us as people uh, through a set of institutions like elections and parliaments who decide the kind of laws that we're going to be bound by. It is not a military general or a religious figure like a priest or an imam or a rabbi. It is not a king or a monarch who makes the laws for us. It is us collectively making the laws through elections in these other institutions. And then the second key value is the value of individual freedom. But we think that there are certain kinds of freedoms that we should have, certain kinds of rights that we have, irrespective of how the majority feels. If a majority doesn't like the way you worship, doesn't like your choice of sexual partner, doesn't like what you say about the world, they don't have a right to punish you for that, uh, even if they win a majority of a vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, 
But how do we sustain a political system that has these two values, individual freedom and collective self-determination? Well, we have to have two things. We have to have respect for people who have very different views from us. And we have to have some independent political institutions. A prime minister, a president is not a monarch for life. It is somebody who has a certain set of important but limited powers and then must face re-election. And those, that re-election must be free and fair. It must give the opposition a fair chance to throw them out of office if people have changed their mind, if they no longer support the prime minister or president. The problem with the populists is that they say, I'm the voice of the people. I've been elected. There should be no limit on my political power. There shouldn't be independent judges who can step in and say, I uh, overstepped uh, the extent of my constitutional authority. There shouldn't be a press that investigates my scandals and criticizes me. And when they are able, as they sometimes have been in Turkey, for example, to place so many of the loyalists in the top positions of different institutions, of courts, of a central bank, of independent electoral commissions, and so on, that they completely come to control the political system, well, then suddenly people are going to go to jail for criticizing the prime minister or the president. The opposition is going to be hamstrung in its ability to fight elections. It'll become impossible to throw a democratically elected president or prime minister out of office again by those same democratic means. Mm. And that is a danger to our or democratic institutions. And so, as I said in the introduction, half the countries in the world are going to the polls this year. As you said, look, not all democracies are equal and, and they, they run somewhat differently. But here, I think, is a uh, a worry, a concern by many people in many democracies around the world. It is the things and the situations and the possibilities, perhaps not a probability, of what you just laid out there. And they're scared of these elections. But you, Yasha Monk, say... The world has entered this long, drawn-out battle. It's it's not just about 2024. Groups that support more populist and anti-democratic governments and those that are more liberal and pro-democracy. What does that struggle actually look like for people? Yes, so when these authoritarian populists first started to be influential in countries uh, where that was really a novelty, in all parts of Europe, in North America... Um, there was this idea that we're going to have a couple of showdowns in which these authoritarian populists either win or don't. And then these systems are going to be put to the test. Once they're in office, they either manage to concentrate power in their own hands, and when that's over, that's it, democracy is over in that country, we'll have a dictatorship for the foreseeable future, or the opposition is going to come back triumphantly, succeed in throwing these populists out of office, um, and then we're going to have a return to full democracy. So it looked like we were going to have a brief period of pitched political battle with a clear outcome. And I increasingly think that that was naive, that that was a mistake for a number of reasons. First of all, we see in many countries that populists can win elections, perhaps be thrown out of office again, but then remain viable, be poised to come back into office, as indeed is the case for Donald Trump in the United States. And the second thing we've seen is that in some countries, they really are able to concentrate power in their own hands to such a degree that democracy is effectively abolished. Um, But in other places, they don't quite succeed in doing that. They do uh, manage to undermine independent institutions. They skew the playing field in such a way that it gives you a big advantage to be in the government. But there remains meaningful elections. And the opposition has a chance of actually ousting the government even under those difficult positions. And so what you end up with is neither a democracy nor dictatorship, but an imperfect, a flawed 
democracy. Uh, uh, my colleague Roberto Fon and I have once called it a dirty democracy, a place where contestation over the nature of the rules comes to be as important as contestation under established rules. And that has bad consequences for economic growth. It has bad consequences for individual freedom. It has bad consequences for free speech. Um, it is something we should take very seriously, but it doesn't necessarily give us a clear-cut result within years of an election. It's part of a long process that might take decades to sort out. Mm. You've been writing about democracy for more than a decade now, Yasha Monk. Um, I, I want to ask you about, well, the setting of your 2014 book, uh, Stranger in My Own Country, was about your life growing up as a Jew in post-war Germany. And Germany, like many other European countries, is now facing a rise in right-wing populism. We heard in the news, I think something like 300,000 people were out on the streets in various cities in Germany yesterday, more expected today, to be out there protesting against this rise in right-wing populism. And I'm wondering, as you see the situation in Germany, over the last decade or so, how have your views on populism changed as you've watched it grow, or have they? Um. Yeah, so first of all, briefly about Germany, uh, you know, Germany is now in some sense becoming a normal country, a normal democracy, which is to say that for the last uh, decade or two, Germany was somewhat anomalous, uh, as in certain ways as Canada, actually, uh, in not having a strong uh, populist movement, and particularly not having a strong far-right populist movements. Um, but in the last years, uh, with a very uh, unpopular government uh, and some economic uh, problems, uh, we have seen the far-right alternative for Germany, which is a very extreme party, uh, even by comparison to similar parties in other European countries, um, gain significantly in the polls. And we do now have a number of state elections coming up in the next months in which it's really unclear whether there's going to be a feasible government that doesn't involve people who do, um, uh, you know, have some amount of nostalgia for the Third Reich or at least um, uh, downplay uh, the horrors of it in a very significant way. And that is a real concern for, for German democracy. Um, you know, how have I changed my views? Well, I guess I would say that, um, you know, if you've been going around the world warning about the dangers of populism as I have for 10 years, and yet these uh, political candidates and movements just keep getting stronger, uh, at some point you feel the urge to look in the mirror. And mm. I have to say that as somebody who came to the United States about 15 years ago, who's been very lucky in gaining entrance into a lot of uh, uh, fancy institutions in the United States. Um, I've come to perceive to what extent some of those institutions have squandered the trust that people once put in them, um, have really distanced themselves from uh, the bulk of the society and the population, coming to have uh, some, I think, quite misguided and dangerous views that have become nearly consensus within them, uh, coming to look down on ordinary citizens, uh, putting them under the general support of suspicion of being racists and biggest and sexists and bad human beings, and generally being a little too smug for our own good. Uh, and that's perhaps particularly striking in the United States, but I see the same trend in Canada and the United Kingdom and continental Europe and many other countries as well. And let me just pick up on that and pu push you a little bit further. Because one of the arguments out there of why 
Donald Trump or others like him around the world, these sort of populist figures, are gaining support or, or able to come back after being a president or just have support is because there is a certain segment that diminishes people who support them as, as stupid and, and, you know, being sort of caught up in all this stuff, when really they seem to be able, these populist figures, to be able to capture that something, something that is happening all around the world, and that is this feeling of anger. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So, um, look, uh, I, I do think that we live in uh, a time period in which because of social media and other phenomena, it is much easier for different strata of society to come to have very different views from each other, to live in very different kinds of cultural worlds. And certainly when you look at North America and Western Europe, uh, there is a set of ideas uh, in particular about group identity that have become very dominant in elite spaces in, in Canada, in the United States, in big parts of Europe. Um, and they say, for example, that I can look at uh, the color of your skin, at your external appearance, and uh, that'll tell me a lot about how privileged you are. Um, if you are white, for example, you must be privileged. And if you're non-white, you must not be privileged. Um, and I think when ordinary people see uh, people talk about about that on TV or on the radio, uh, they will often understandably have the instinct that, hey, I'm here. I don't need a particularly uh, distinguished life. You know, I, I, I'm I'm happy where I'm at, but but I'm not rich and famous and I'm not on TV and I'm not on radio. And now here's these people on TV and radio who presumably uh, have uh, pretty good lives in certain ways compared to me, uh, telling me that, uh, you know, I'm the cause of all problems in this country and I should somehow be ashamed of myself. Well, well who do they think they are? Why do they think they get to lecture me? Um, that's just one small little example. Um, but when you see that anger, when you see that sense of lack of trust in the institutions, that sense that, you know what, I'm going to vote for somebody who perhaps is uncouth, who actually I dislike in some ways, who I disagree with on some things, but at least that person doesn't seem to be judging me. At least that person mm. seems to be on my side. Um, I, I think that is driven uh, in part by the failings that people like you and me who have a platform in the media and who are part of these fancy institutions in society should reflect upon. Fair point, fair point. Reflection going on over here. I think that's a good point to remind us all about all of our responsibilities in a democracy. Let's talk with the United States. Um, of course, the New Hampshire primary being this Tuesday for the Republicans. It seems like this is Donald Trump's um, nomination to lose, especially after the Iowa caucuses. We'll see what happens in New, New Hampshire. What is at stake, do you think, if Donald Trump wins the nomination and faces off against President Joe Biden in November and, and possibly uh, wins that and returns to office? So first of all, uh, Donald Trump is very likely to win the Republican nomination. Of course, uh, he has not yet done so, but all of the polls indicate that he uh, probably will uh, very soon uh, secure the nomination. And in uh, most of the polling for the general election at the moment, Donald Trump is ahead uh, against Joe Biden. It doesn't guarantee that he's going to win. It's a long time to go. And uh, Donald Trump is actually quite unpopular in the American public. But certainly if the election were this coming Tuesday, um, it would be likely that Donald Trump would be the next president. Um, and I think that that is going to pose a bigger danger to American democracy than it did the first time around. In 2016, uh, Donald Trump uh, was actually mostly focused on promises about the future of the country. They were not promises that I found to be realistic or in every case particularly attractive. Um, but he was 
talking a big game about what he wanted to do for the United States. He did not have full control over his own political party. Many traditional Republicans saw him very skeptically. And he did not have any experience uh, governing the country, having control over federal bureaucracy or any team of loyalists uh, willing and able to actually uh, carry out some of his more uh, outrageous or illegal uh, orders. Um, this time around, it's going to be very different. Um, he is in, if you can imagine that, a much darker mood than he was in 2016, um, much more consumed with uh, the the attacks on him, with his legal troubles, with the way that he claims to be being treated unfairly. He uh, has full control over the Republican Party at this point. He has a lot of loyalists who've... Uh, uh, gained some experience running the country from 2016 to 2020 and uh, who are fully on his side. Um, and so I think that a second stint in office for Donald Trump is going to be uh, much more impactful and going to pose a much more concerted threat to uh, independent institutions, um, to the constitutional order than his first term in office did. So what do you say to people, Americans, in, in the context of, of Donald Trump, but also in other democracies around the world who are who are worried about the way we're going? What is your message to them? Um, well, you know, I think uh, it is very hard to imagine democratic institutions uh, really coming under concerted attack or even failing in a country that has uh, enjoyed them for so long. Um I uh, would say to those who attempted to vote for Donald Trump that uh, those institutions are at the core of a lot of what is good about the country, um, of a lot of its prosperity, of a lot of its freedoms, and uh, that it is not worth uh, putting those in danger uh, over a policy disagreement or even over uh, understandable anger against, quote-unquote, the other side in politics. But I would also say to those uh, who perhaps are more likely to listen to a program like this, to my friends and colleagues, that if we want not just to avoid Donald Trump winning the election in November of this year, but more broadly to uh, contain the rise of these populist movements, we need to actually win back the trust and affection of most citizens. We need to look ourselves in the mirror and understand why our institutions have come to lose legitimacy to such an extent. And that also involves confronting the new kind of ideology about race and gender and sexual orientation that I described in my latest book and the identity trap and that has become uh, so dominant in many uh, left-leaning spaces. Yeah, Shamank, it's been good listening to you this morning. I appreciate your time so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yasha Munk is an international affairs professor at Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. As you just heard him say there, his latest book is called The Identity Trap. Next month will mark two years since Russia's war in Ukraine began. Much attention has been fixed on the battlefield and also on the human cost of this war. But its ripple effects are also being felt inside Russia, where crackdowns on dissent against the war have surged. CBC producer Julia Poggle has been following the story of one woman in St. Petersburg, Russia, whose small act of protest has been met with some big consequences. Here's Julia with our Sunday documentary, Sasha's message. It 
It's about one month after Russia invaded Ukraine, March 30th, 2022. And Sasha Skochelenko walks into a small grocery store in her hometown of St. Petersburg, Russia. Sasha's in a puffy winter coat and a woolen hat with this fox face knit on the top. When she was passing through that supermarket, she was with a guitar. I, I believe she was going someplace to play music. This is Alex. Uh, my name is Alex Belazorov. I am a longtime friend of Sasha. Sasha's an artist, writer, and musician. Alex says Sasha isn't normally an activist, but this war is moving her to act, which is why when she walks into the store, she doesn't just buy groceries. I believe it went just like she turned her hand in the pocket to get out her money or something like that, and she remembered that she has those price tags and she just put them. Price tags, small stickers, where she had printed anti-war messages. Messages like... Russian army bombed an art school in Mariupol. There were 400 people hiding inside. Referring to Ukraine's report during the 2022 siege on the city. And... Conscripts are being sent to fight in Ukraine. We pay for this war with the lives of our children. Sasha stuck the labels onto shelves in the grocery store. She just put them right there and right then and forgot about them completely. I'm almost sure about that. But these little stickers would not be forgotten. A woman at the store that day reported Sasha to the police. And with the store's surveillance footage, the police tracked her down. The woman who reported Sasha later told police, I was extremely outraged by the slander I read, because I'm very worried about the Russian soldiers in Ukraine. I watch all the news about it. She said that made it obvious that Sasha's information was false. On April 11th, about two weeks after she placed the tags in the grocery store, Sasha was arrested and taken to a detention center, charged with what Russian authorities classified as spreading deliberately false information about the Russian army. And here's where the fight for Sasha's freedom begins. A fight waged by Sasha, but also friends, family, and strangers. People willing to stand up for her as their country shapeshifts around them. Open letter, April 16th, five days in detention. Not long after her detention, Sasha started writing letters, sent through her lawyers, as she wasn't allowed visitors. A day of freedom that I spent in the company of the detectives and investigators was more horrible than all the days I have spent in jail. They said disgusting things to me, mocked, humiliated, and bullied me. I heard obscene comments about my appearance, my way of living, my friends, and the place where I live. Whatever the prosecutors try to do to me, however they attempt to drag me through the mud, humiliate me, put me in the most inhumane conditions, I will only take the brightest, the most incredible and beautiful things from this experience. That is what the essence of being an artist is. What is happening to me is a living document of our era. It's fall 2022, about five months after Sasha's arrest. Alex, Sasha's longtime friend, is in his apartment in St. Petersburg. It's now still an okay time to talk. Sounds like it. 
Yeah, it's uh, like 9 p.m. here. His hair's dyed pink, but it's fading. His face is slim. High school, when we got acquainted, she, she was playing music already. She had a band. And uh, so the first thing I had to do when, when we met, like I had to attend the concert somewhere in the woods, I, I believe. In the woods? So that, that kind of... Yeah, in the woods. Oh, wow. Since Sasha's arrest in April, Alex has dedicated huge amounts of his time to support her. Her crime, the crime of which she's accused. The law keeping and... Sasha in detention is a new one. It was put in place just a week after Russia's assault on Ukraine started. Article 207.3 makes illegal the spreading of deliberately false information about the use of the armed forces of the Russian Federation. It's punishable by fines and prison sentences of up to 15 years. Right now, Sasha's lawyers are trying to get her approved for house arrest while she awaits her trial. So far, no luck. Conditions at the detention center are not good. And you cellmate was moved to her cell and... Uh, From talking with her lawyer and the she's letters she's sending, Alex learned Sasha's cellmate is sick and can't go outside. So both women are being denied their daily walks. But what's uh, more important, uh, I guess we still don't know why Sasha's having pain in, the, in her chest. We... And Alex says the doctors at the center aren't taking those chest pains seriously. Sasha also has celiac disease. And Alex says the food at the prison is making her sick. So a lot of the time, she just doesn't eat. Because she always has to balance her hunger and her anxiety about eating something that is poisonous to her. Alex and others drop off safe food for her with the wardens as much as possible. Alex can't visit Sasha since he's been made a witness in the case. There are the few seconds they get to see each other as Sasha passes through the hallway to the courtroom for one of her many pre-trial hearings. We see Sasha led down the hallway. She's in a bright tie-dyed shirt with a heart on it, her arms held by two guards. She smiles at her friends and some supporters. A burst of connection. Then Sasha's led into the courtroom, followed by a few people, and the doors are closed. And after those meetings, she always writes like, Guys, you look awful. You have to rest immediately. Stop everything you're doing. I don't know, go camping and do something good for you. Like, that's always her reaction. September 13th, 2022. Birthday letter. On my birthday, I usually remember the most incredible experiences of my life. Each year, their number grows. Even though this year I am celebrating my birthday behind bars, I still decided to remember the biggest and most tremendous things that have happened to me over 32 years. 1. Twice, I learned to walk again after two hip fractures that happened within a few months. 2. I managed to go into remission during treatment of my bipolar affective disorder. 3. A book about depression. A comic book I drew for my friends almost accidentally in order to explain my state. 7. Met the love of my life and spent almost six years with her. It's been difficult, but we are still deeply in love. 
and find support and strength in each other. We dream of getting married when I get out. And we met each other online. Sonia Sabotina, Sasha's girlfriend, looks drained, her straight hair framing her almost expressionless face. But a smile peeks into the corners of her mouth when I start asking about the early days of her and Sasha's relationship. I talk with Sonia through an interpreter. Uh, we met online. I really liked Sasha's profile picture, and for a while we were just texting and then decided to meet up in real life. And that's how it started. And we fell in love really quickly, and uh, the relationship started um, like very quickly, yeah. Life for those in the LGBTQ community in Russia is really hard. Same-sex unions aren't permitted in Russia. It's illegal to share what Russia calls gay propaganda, basically any information that says being gay is normal. And in November of 2023, a new law passed calling international LGBTQ organizations extremists. But Sonia and Sasha don't hide their relationship. When Sonia got the call that Sasha was in detention. Yeah, so there was really no stage of denial in my case. I instantly felt really emotional. And uh, it's really hard to describe these emotions in words. I would not wish this upon anyone. Um, but yeah, in short, I felt terrible. I cried a lot. And um, yeah, it's just really, really hard. The next day is another pre-trial hearing. And as always, Sonia will be there. I feel nervous, uh, like I always feel before court hearings. I'm, of course, really happy that I will have a chance to see Sasha because this is our only opportunity to really see each other. Sasha's birthday letter. Six. I graduated from St. Petersburg State University, summa cum laude. I got into the university. Number eight. I spent a night in a deep forest. I chose the spot from satellite pictures and made my way there basically from memory. Because at that point in life, I did not own a smartphone. I put up a tent on my own on the bank of a wild forest river. It was really scary at night, but at sunrise, I felt infinite peace and calm, as if the whole forest were my home. A lot of time passed since we were together somewhere in the green, but after Sasha was detained, I, like, I guess as a means of some psychological relief, I went out camping several times with Sonia, uh, for example, and that was quite good. The forgotten feeling. I believe when Sasha is free at last year, hope we are going for a long trip somewhere. Like, I have no plans uh, further than several days right now. That's uh, just pointless talk to talk about that. It's October 2022, about a month after Alex and I first spoke, six months since Sasha was detained. Today, Alex looks exhausted. 
He often holds his face in his hand, drifting off camera. Since he and I last spoke, Putin has imposed the draft, forcing Russians to fight in Ukraine. Many people are fleeing the country. I stopped using subway because that's a place where they usually try and conscribe you. Alex is 35 and could be conscripted at any moment. With this risk, I ask if he's considering leaving the country while he still can. I, I mean, I can do it physically. Maybe, maybe, maybe not right now. Maybe the time is gone for that as well. I don't know. Uh, but I just can't, I won't be able to leave with that if I leave right now. Now, just uh, every day is like a roulette wheel, like a Russian roulette, maybe. <laughs> Um, it's a lot of stress you're living with. I, I think I'm, I've actually uh, maxed out my stress level, so I don't feel worse when they started mobilizing people. I felt nothing, really. Alex's main focus is still his friend. He tells me how Sasha has a new cellmate and that her walks outside have resumed. They still don't know why she's having these chest pains and they continue to fight to get her on house arrest, to no avail. But uh, the most recent developments are that the main hearing is going to start soon. Ah, actually, that's a new development as well. We have now access to Sasha's case in full, gathered in five volumes. Just give me a minute, I'll try and open Sasha's case. There's a lot of relevant stuff there, like some missing documents for the supermarket that Sasha was in, the instructions for the staff of that supermarket, how to operate the automatic doors, like the picture of her hat. Yes, because it's a very distinctive one. The police also managed to open Sasha's phone and accessed text messages Sasha was exchanging with a friend in Ukraine. Who was messaging her from Kiev subway that was used as a bomb shelter early in the war. And she was hiding there with the kids and she was messaging social, how could your country do that? Can you do something to stop it? These texts will also help form Sasha's case. The law she's charged with, again, is spreading deliberately false information. Her lawyers will argue that when Sasha placed those price tags in the grocery store, she wasn't deliberately spreading false information but sharing what she believed was true. Her lawyer, Yana, told me she wouldn't be contesting the law itself. She said judges and prosecutors say the law is a law, so there's no point in arguing its validity, or humanity, as Yana puts it. She says that argument might be something to take to the constitutional courts down the road. Trying to stand my ground. I ask Alex how he finds the energy to keep going. The main reason is just because Sasha's family not by blood, but their bond is now unbreakable. I have no choice. Sonia has no choice. The trial begins on December 15th, 2022. Sasha pleads not guilty. As the year goes on, more and more people are arrested under the same law. The numbers include young, old, those who posted online in chat groups with friends, and those who are peacefully protesting in the streets. 
persecute any human rights defenders. This is Dimitri. My name is Dmitry Anisimov. I work as a spokesperson for Over the Info, which is a human rights media project focused on uh, political repression in Russia. He fled Russia after the war because he feared his work could land him in jail or find himself conscripted. He's now working from Istanbul. Since 2012, Dmitry's organization has been tracking political repression in Russia. And since the war with Ukraine, that repression has skyrocketed. We know that 19,890 people were detained for their anti-war stance in uh, pickets, in protest rallies, or for anti-war publications in their social networks pages since the start of the full-scale invasion. That's almost 20,000 people detained. Almost three times as many as in 2012, the previous high, when around 7,000 people were detained for taking to the streets, demanding political reform. Another change is what's happening to those who speak out. Before the full-scale invasion, you would be fined or you would be arrested for some time, maybe 10 or 15 days, or in some cases, uh, you might be arrested for 30 days. And that was the toughest, like, sanction for uh, speaking out. Now, people who are critical of the government, people like Sasha, aren't just being fined. More and more, they're being criminally charged. According to Dimitri's organization, there are 810 defendants in criminal cases related to their anti-war stance. 297 of those are charged with the same crime as Sasha. Dimitri's organization has found at least 171 people have been convicted and are serving lengthy sentences. Taking a walk. The open air space that I have now, together with my cellmate, feels like a paradise to me. It is a concrete box that has bars covered with barbed wire for a ceiling. The space is approximately 3 by 5 meters in size. Three dandelions pierce out through the crumbling concrete floor. I am very fond of them, and I watch them grow little by little each day. These are the only plants I see during my open-air time. I usually run around the yard, dance, sing, exercise, and recite my poems. The walking amounts to slowly moving around in circles in the same direction, one after another. You can also linger in a corner, turning your face to the sun. That's about it. The trial drags on. Winter turns to spring. Summer. In September, Sasha has her second birthday in detention. Then, in October of 2023, Sasha's case begins picking up speed. George, she picked up the pace. She's in court almost every day. We are just racing to the end. Alex says the nonstop pace is hard on Sasha. She can't eat the food they provide while at court. So it becomes like a torture for Sasha. But with the trial speeding up, a verdict could come soon. I ask Alex if he's dreaming of her being set free. No, we are not dreaming about that. No, no. They might uh, let her go. Tiny possibility of that. But personally, I cannot hope for that because uh, that hope will eat me from the inside.
It's November 16th, 2023, and another day in court is about to get underway. As Alex arrives, when he sees the guards, he knows today is the day the verdict will be passed. The guards are dressed differently than usual, wearing helmets and bulletproof vests. Alex shares a live stream of the event on YouTube. The video shows the hallway outside the courtroom, 20 to 30 people milling around, waiting for Sasha. Sonia's in a green sweatshirt standing next to the guards, looking at their protective gear. She laughs. We see a glimpse of Sasha as she heads into the courtroom, in her signature tie-dyed t-shirt with the heart, hands cuffed behind her back. A smile on her face as the crowd cheers, guards surrounding her. Today, Sasha is permitted to give her last word, a speech she calls Yes Life. She addresses the court and judge. Yes, I am a pacifist. I believe that life is sacred. Oh, yes, life. She is strong. It breaks through the asphalt. It destroys stones. It will turn from a tiny sprout into a gigantic baobab tree, from a microscopic cell into a giant veil. Human life is fleeting. Human life is insignificant. And all we can do is just prolong this short moment of bliss. There was a two-hour break, and I just tried to, like, blank my mind. Yeah, when we were invited back to the room, uh, the Sasha's cage was surrounded by uh, those bay leaves. When Alex talks about Sasha's cage, he really means a cage. It's a small prison cell inside the courtroom, complete with metal bars. The room is packed. There's lots of press. So I didn't see the judge. I could barely hear her, but I saw Sasha. Well, because I was standing right right next to her cage. And uh, Sonia managed to enter early, so she was close. Everyone is on their feet. Sasha is looking expectantly towards the judge. She's rhythmically touching each finger to her thumb. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Her body gently rocking back and forth. And then... Like she said, like, it's seven years. Sasha is sentenced to seven years in prison. She opened her mouth in surprise, in awe. She makes a heart with her fingers, smiles at the crowd. And that's it. Immediately, everybody started shouting. Shame, shame on you. Shame on you. Sonia, she begged uh, the police to let her touch Sasha's hand or something, but they, they grabbed her and uh, tried to just drag her out of the room. She started shouting. 
And uh, Sasha saw that and she cried. And all those pictures of Sasha's crying, it's not about the verdict. She, when uh, she heard the verdict, she laughed. But when she saw what is happening to Sonia, she just couldn't hold her tears, you know. She wanted to deliver a message. That wasn't her plan when she put that small uh, stickers. She wasn't up to it, she didn't expect it, but when she found herself in that place, she understood that now it's time for her to deliver a message. Alex says Sasha believes that love and peace can prevail over war and hatred. Through her actions, the way she's conducted herself over the past two years, she wanted to show that possibility. They're going to appeal the verdict, but at best, Alex thinks maybe a year could be taken off her sentence. Even though I am the one in the cage, perhaps I am much freer than you. I have no enemies. I am not afraid to remain poor. I am not afraid to lose the roof over my head. I am not afraid to seem strange, vulnerable, weak, funny. I am not afraid to be different from others. Perhaps this is why my state is so afraid of me and others like me, since it keeps me in a cage like a most dangerous animal. That documentary was produced by Julia Poggle from CBC's Audio Documentary Unit with help from AC Rowe, Olsi Sorokina and Sasha Luna. You can read more about Sasha Skochilenko's story and see her drawings that she's made depicting her time in detention by going to our website, which is cbc.ca slash Sunday. And that's it for this week here on The Sunday Magazine. Our producers are Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, Pete Mitten, and Roddy Williams. We had additional help this week from studio director Karen Marley and audio technician Sam McNulty. Our senior producer is Howard Goldenthal. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. Join me here once again in one week's time when Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, will be here. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you so very much for lending us your ear. Till next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.